Well, with Rex, I bring you my welcome. I'm Joel, and I'm privileged to serve you this morning. We're in Luke chapter 19. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 29. I also have it printed for you in your bulletin for easy access. Friends, today is the day of the big reveal. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, the big reveal, it means to bring something hidden and wonderful into full view. A big reveal is meant to change everything about the situation we think we have in front of us. And that is what Luke wants for us as his readers to take in. I don't see any of us seat belted in our seats or clutching our texts with white knuckles right now. Maybe you're not expecting a big reveal today. A revelation that will totally change what is happening here right now or alter your life course significantly when you walk out the door. I don't suspect anybody's thinking that. Let me give us an illustration to help us lean into our text. Let me frame it with a story of an Atlanta choir not too long ago that was actually invited to England to perform. Obviously, this choir had trained quite hard, disciplined themselves, that they actually got this invite. What an affirmation to receive an invitation to come to England to sing John Rudder compositions. I hear one who Marianne understands. If you don't know who John Rudder is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rudder is one of these musical geniuses, so gifted. I think at 18, he was already producing stuff that's just world known. Basically, he's received about every reward that you can have for choral music, carols. He's a composer. He's, he's also a conductor. John Rudder is amazing. He was actually commissioned to do a wedding anthem for Prince, well, soon to be King William and his wife Catherine, if you remember. That's how great John Rudder is. So this choir receives this invitation to go to England for this big moment to perform this Rudder piece. And they get there, and it's a tiny little Anglican church. Now, mind you, this is a choir of about 100 people. So they go out onto the stage, and what do they see? Not even as many as we have here, like a dozen people or so. Nonetheless, they get up there, they sing their hearts out, they're performing this rudder piece wonderfully. And at the end, the crowd stands up and begins to applaud as loudly as a dozen or so can. That's like one applauder for every 10 performers. Think about it. You see the scene? Do you think this might have been disheartening for this choir? And then the conductor walked down to the front row, asked this elderly man to st stand. He puts his arm around him, and he says, crowd, will you please quiet down, which wasn't really hard. He says, ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you John Rudder himself. Do you think this big reveal changed everything in this moment for this choir? Do you think that his visitation changed how they viewed that performance going forward the rest of their lives? What do you think the crowd thought? That the great John Rudder would humble himself to visit this little church in a relatively unknown choir to hear his own work? Friends, I stand here to introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is here and now, and he is the king of the entire cosmos. Let that sink in. Let us first pray that we might be made aware 
that he's visited us. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and right now we confess that we don't have eyes to see those glorious things you want to show us. So we open our eyes, open our ears, and give us new hearts, our hearts that are strangely warmed once again, to see our Lord Jesus and all he's done for us and all he is and all his glory. Have mercy. Send your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29. When he, Jesus, drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So today, at long last, Jesus reaches his destination, the capital city. He began this march 10 chapters ago to a place he said that he would suffer and die. Friends, we've just entered the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the cross. We said last week Jesus was storming the beaches of Normandy. His D-Day operation guarantees V-Day, Victory Day, for all who would trust in him. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to bring peace to our entire planet. Do you know the things that make for peace? Do you know the things that make for peace? If you don't, then thank God that he has brought you here to have it revealed to you. Friends, peace hinges upon this lowly man riding a donkey. 
You'll notice how I divided this text up in our bulletin. Luke is using this Greek word engizo, which means to draw near, and you see it in verse 29, verse 37, and then verse 41. Each of these starts a new scene as Jesus draws nearer and nearer and nearer. And then in verse 45, Jesus arrives and he enters the holy temple. Now that might surprise you. We have been talking about Jesus going to Jerusalem for months. And now we get here and Luke doesn't even mention the capital city. He never names it in this text. Luke fast forward past the entry into Jerusalem and spotlights Jesus when he enters the temple. What is Luke doing? Luke is showing us that the things that make for peace begin when Jesus enters the temple. Friends, the temple was the one place on this whole planet where heaven and earth met. The one place. Peace on earth can only happen if there is peace in heaven. And right now the temple is filled with the enemy occupiers that Jesus is more concerned about. So today's the day. He's going to put the motion into motion, the invasion plan that God and him planned. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany on the, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now we know Bethany to be the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It's just a short walk from Jerusalem. And it is as he's drawing near here, Jesus decides it's time to fulfill the ancient prophecy of Zechariah 9 9. The verse goes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's big reveal time. Jesus is going to ride in Jerusalem as the prophesied king. It's time to get folks' attention. And you don't actually have to know Old Testament prophecy to see Jesus is doing a big reveal here. Nobody rides into Jerusalem during Passover week. It's a pilgrimage. You walk. Now, at least two things are going to surprise the disciples here. Up to this point, Jesus has been trying to keep a low profile. He's been hiding his identity for 19 chapters. He would hush up the demons that he would cast out when they started to say who he was. Remember the leper in chapter 5? Jesus said, don't tell anybody that I healed you. He said to Jairus after raising his 12-year-old daughter from the dead, keep this under wraps. Jesus has been hiding his identity, but Jesus says now, I'm making it clear that I'm the king and I'm coming to claim what is my own. And Jesus chooses a sacred animal, an unridden colt. It will be seen as pure. You see, the holy temple is what is in his sights. Now, the second thing I think that would surprise the disciples is this call to faith as donkey fetchers. Jesus is saying, guys, I'm in total control, and you need to trust me as I send you out on this mission. I mean, how would you like it if Jesus asked you to like walk to the next town and jump into the first new car you see and then bring it back for him? And if anyone sees you hop in their car, you know, and you're turning the keys and runs up and says, what are you doing? You say, no worries, not for me. The Lord has need of it. I think this is a call of faith, don't you? Perhaps it's a word for you today. 
Maybe the Lord's calling you to do something uncomfortable, to trust and obey, but you don't see how this can work out. Well, you need to put your faith into action, trusting that Jesus is in control of all the results. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks along the road. Look at this. Jesus is glorified because they stepped out in faith. And they set Jesus on this colt. And now they see Jesus truly is in control. Jesus not only had control of the hearts of the donkey's owners, Jesus has control of the donkey's heart. I'm no donkey expert, but I've heard they're pretty stubborn animals. How many ways could it go wrong if you would take and sit a total stranger on an unridden donkey, untrained? How many ways could it go wrong? But then they discover this man is no stranger to this donkey. This colt knows his true master. This is the one who created him. And this colt is just delighted to be able to do what he was created to do. These disciples see yet again as they see Jesus on this colt. Just like the day at the sea when Jesus hushed the storm like it was a puppy. Jesus is the ruler of all nature. And they get all excited at this point. I, I get excited too. They start throwing their cloaks on the road to make it a parade. Actually, this recalls a scene from King Jehu spreading the cloaks. The only time you find a scripture, he's actually coming in judgment. It needs to be out in front of us. But they're excited. It's time to reveal Jesus is the new king, and they're going down Main Street in the capital city proclaiming it. Where actually in that capital city sits a ruler on a throne named Pontius Pilate. But notice Jesus is not riding a war horse. He's no military messiah. The big reveal is that the new king comes gentle and lowly, riding a donkey colt. Every week we have this moment of meditation where our king is calling you to come to him. It may be uncomfortable, but he says, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Do you know the things that make for peace? Do you know the things that make for peace? Jesus now draws near in our next scene. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you see the scene? The capital city is now in sight. Imagine their hearts are thumping, the fervor is building up. Now they don't actually understand what's going to happen here. But they're praising God. Why? Because, it says here, they've witnessed his mighty deeds in the past, his mighty works. I was actually sent to comfort a, a believer this week who was in really great distress over what the future held for them. And after listening to their situation and their distress, I borrowed a phrase actually from Mike, and I asked them, so what do you think God is up to in this? That's pretty much all I did. A question a prayer and pretty much a ministry of presence because that question right there set them on a journey down memory lane that lasted nearly an hour. They began to recall all the past times 
that God had done mighty works in their lives. And when I left, this person was rejoicing and praising God with great hope for the future. These disciples are doing the same. Think about it. Nothing has changed about their situation. There's extra Romans in the city right now. Roman enemy occupiers are there. But recounting God's mighty past works in Jesus gives them hope for the future. Rex read from Psalm 118 this morning, a psalm that speaks about the glorious future for God's people. That's what they're singing. And they quote verse 26, but they insert something different. Blessed is the king. That's not in Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, Matthew and Mark, they don't mention Jesus being proclaimed king. Luke does. Friends, Luke is revealing that Jesus is the redeemer come to rule and reign as king. And this king's visitation will bring in the new day, Psalm 118 prophesied. We recently had a creation Sabbath series. Beginning of this month, we ended it. I want us to see the triumphal entry is day one of the new seven-day creation. Day one. In seven days, God created the world. And the next day, seven days, starting now, he's going to recreate it. In Genesis 1, God set Adam as ruler over the world. The first ruler failed to protect his bride from her enemy at the tree of testing. Adam threw Eve under the bus, remember that? And failed to enter God's seventh day rest. We now live in a world filled with enemies and how much peace is there between men and women? The good news now, starting now, is that a second Adam has come to usher in a better future. And this ruler will lay down his life for his bride, the church, at a second tree test. And he will die on the sixth day for her. And Jesus will enter that Sabbath day rest on the seventh day, lying in the grave, his work finished, in order to bring in the new creation on the Lord's day, Easter Sunday. A day when there will be peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Did you catch that? You may recall like a hundred years ago when we started this series, the angels, they were praising God before the shepherds. And they said, glory to God in the highest peace on earth. See something different? There's actually all these early chapter echoes that are going to start now moving forward. Zechariah in chapter 1 will speak of the visitation that will bring peace. The angels proclaim glory in the highest peace on earth because the Son of God descended. Luke is showing us how this visitation will bring peace in heaven. The risen Lord Jesus at the end is going to ascend to the heavenly throne to establish peace, true peace. Many folks today, we were just talking about this morning in Sunday school, they don't believe Jesus' coming can bring us a better future. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, verse 39, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They don't believe this man on a donkey colt has the power to change anything. I love Jesus' answer here. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Can you imagine their jaws dropping right now? Jesus says, oh, you don't like the song they're singing? Oh, you would prefer some rock music. Okay, yeah. How's that for a big reveal? Actually, this is a big reveal. Jesus is not just claiming rule over Jerusalem. He's claiming rule over all creation. Even the rocks will praise him. 
Jesus is saying, I am so great and so powerful, nothing can stop, silence my praise. Creation has actually been groaning since mankind subjected it to this torture that it's under right now, this bondage. These rocks on the ground, guess what? They're just waiting in line to start singing if these guys shut up. Friends, we cannot stop the praise of our glorious king. So let me ask you, if all of creation right now eagerly longs, groans to praise our Lord Jesus, why is it that in every heart here, believer or unbeliever, we still find resistance in us to praising him, to accepting his rule? Think about it. The whole rest of creation has no problem obeying and submitting to its ruler. You and I, all creation exists because there's an almighty creator standing outside time and space. And he fashioned us to please him. Everything. The trees obey God. They do what they're made to do. They even raise their limbs in praise. The birds, they have any issues? No. They do what they're supposed to do and they sing praise every morning I hear it. But mankind... We shake our fist. We're going to do our own thing. We won't have you to reign over us. Refuse to praise God. We destroy our planet, this good creation. We're constantly at war with one another. Friends, do we know the things that make for peace? Do we know the things that make for peace? Take in the face of the king as he now draws near to look over the city. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known the thing, on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Last Wednesday evening, September 21st, Jamie and I, we went down to the park and celebrated the last day of summer eating at a picnic table. Now another celebration was taking place that day, not Tammy's birthday. September 21st is the International Day of Peace, established over a half century ago by the United Nations, where nations are to observe a ceasefire and to seek to strengthen peace ideals. It was not observed in Ukrainian cities, neither was it in this city. I saw firsthand victims of horrible violence this last week. Maybe that's why it never occurred to me that I ought to be celebrating world peace last week. Did it occur to any of you? Any of you think, oh, we should celebrate world peace this week? How can we celebrate it in the world when the fact is we can't even get it right in our own community? or even in our own homes, with people who are our flesh and blood. Be honest with yourself. How many times have you found it we just took one little word or one look and suddenly you broke all peace in your own home and war broke out? It's absolutely impossible for mankind to bring peace on earth. Yet we all long for it, don't we? Don't we? Every New Year's Eve, Folks, they look back at all the fighting of the last year. This is the only time I think everyone actually thinks about it. They see all that's happened in the last year and like, oh. And they see in front of them a fresh calendar, nothing written on it yet, all blank. 
And the reporters at Times Square, they shove the microphone in people's faces and they say, so what are you wishing for in the new year? And what do they always say? World peace. Peace on earth. And then they hold hands and they sing John Lennon's Imagine as they prepare to watch the ball drop. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine no religion. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Sorry. I like Lennon. He's one of my favorite artists. But Lennon was a dreamer, and sadly, he's not the only one. That's why Jesus is weeping here in verse 41. Do you get that? You're taking in the human face of our God, weeping. With tears in his eyes, Jesus now speaks of a day when Jerusalem is going to be wasted. It's residents slaughtered. You can read about it in the ancient history of Josephus. He reports over a million Jews were slaughtered under the Romans by Titus. And now Jesus details perfectly the siege to come in AD 70. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus doesn't assign fault to the Romans here, but to them, because they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not know the things that made for peace. Remember, Jesus told a parable last week where the new king orders the slaughter of those who rejected his rule, like the Pharisees. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? Let me ask it this way. Who do you think your greatest enemy is? Jesus has just eliminated the possibility that it is any human being, even the most evil one. Who do you think your greatest enemy is? The devil? Sin? Death? No, friends. None of them are your greatest enemy. Who is your greatest enemy? God himself. God himself is your greatest enemy. Did you know that? That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 5 says that we are all by nature God's enemy. That's why Lenin wanted to imagine a world with no heaven, with no God, no religion. You realize that? Why many governments develop worldviews that ignore their possibility of being a creator. They don't want a creator to rule over them. Actually, I think the worst thing in the world is to imagine a world where there is no heaven. What do you mean, Joel? We can make wishes, we can hold hands, we can dream about peace together, but that doesn't work. Why not? Oh, because you have to wake up the morning of January 1st, and you have to try and live out that dream. What happens? Someone irritates you, right? Maybe it's in traffic. Maybe someone in your own home. Someone in your neighborhood. Somebody at work. Somebody at school. Why should you be irritated anyone? Why aren't you at peace? If there is no heaven, there's absolutely no reason for you to ever get mad at anybody ever. That's my problem when I get angry at people. I get angry because I expect people to act perfectly. I expect them to act like they can only act 
in heaven. You realize that? The problem of no peace out there is because there's no peace in here. And the reason there's no peace in here is because there's no peace up there. But Christ is now coming to make that available. Friends, peace cannot begin with others until we have peace with God. Our problem is we don't want God to reign over us, yet God in His love, before we ever loved Him, moved to love us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and He comes with tears in His eyes. Comes to the temple, the final Passover lamb, to sacrifice His life, to take your place, Jesus has come to be God's enemy in your place. Do you get that? That's what the cross is about. To go to the cross to receive all that punishment you deserve, he becomes the enemy you are so that you can become God's friend. That is the good news of the gospel. By simply believing, God this morning is offering you peace in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're a not yet follower of Christ, the question for you is, why would you reject the things that make for peace? Why? God doesn't want you to remain his enemy. He wants to give you a new heart. Take out that old hard heart. He wants to turn you from your vices and your sins that still rule you so that his gentle reign can begin the moment you first believe. You do realize that behind every sin, everything you do that you know is wrong, behind every sin is unbelief. Behind every sin is unbelief because unbelief is opposed to sin solution. Unbelief is opposed to sin's solution. Our Savior. And that is what causes the human face of God to weep over Jerusalem. Ironically named place of peace. Yet it knows not the things that make for peace. And Jesus is continuing to weep today over the city. That's why we planted Harp City Church in the downtown why we're on a mission to reach those who have yet to know the King of Peace. Ryle says, We make a big mistake if we think that Christ cares only for those who believe in Him. He cares for everyone. His heart is wide enough to make, take an interest in all mankind. His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. Hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their behavior, but they will never be able to say that Christ was not merciful and not ready to save. We know too little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, and his disciples should feel the same way. And now the king arrives, and he begins to set things in order. Verse 45, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. We all know what happens when there's a change of leadership that takes place at the top. You remember what Joe Biden did on day one when he took office? He set forth to undo just about everything he could that the previous leadership had done, just like Trump did, just like Obama did. Jesus immediately acts and goes about his own executive orders. 
His first act, time to cleanse the temple. Chase out those selling the animal sacrifices. Materialism had taken place in the temple. He quotes Isaiah 56. God's house was to be a house of prayer for the nations. Folks had set up shop in the only place where Gentiles actually could worship. That's the scene here. Jesus says the temple, the whole purpose was to show God's love for the nations, his welcome to them. You see another big reveal suddenly that Luke's drawn out? Jesus has shown himself to be the new high priest. He's running out all the old animal sacrifices because he is the priest who's brought a better sacrifice himself and a fountain of blood that could cleanse better than all those 250,000 sheep Josephus talks about every Passover. But his fountain, it will cleanse all people, wash them clean. Jesus as the high priest has come to reconcile ruined sinners. And after Jesus revealed his reign as king, reconciles the ruin as priest, then in verse 47, he begins to reveal the reversal now as the prophet, teaching in the temple. Our catechism speaks of the redeemer of mankind. He must have a threefold office, prophet, priest, king. In Israel's past, you had kings who ruled the people and restrained their enemies. You also had priests who went to God for, on behalf of the people, praying for them, offering sacrifices. And you had prophets who were then called to reveal God's will to the people. And Jesus, well, Luke wants us to see that we have the prophet, priest, and king that we need, a perfect helper in every way. Do you want a perfect helper who can bring you peace? Luke wants you to see that peace has come in a person. And friends, this person has visited us today. He's here right now. We have this pattern of worship we follow every week. We find that pattern here, actually, don't we? Jesus first draws near. Then he weeps over sin. Then he cleanses the temple. And only after then does he begin to teach. Pretty much what we do, right? We confess our sins. We lament them, our situation. We then hear the good news that Jesus has cleansed us. And then we come here. We are to hang on every single word that our Lord Jesus speaks, telling us how to live as his people, taking in his love and how he wants to change us. I'm not arguing Luke arranged this as liturgy, as an order of worship, but I am arguing that this is the day of your visitation. Today is the day of your visitation. Jesus reveals himself as we see our need, as we sing his praise, as we listen to his own composition. He's here right now. One day you will see him in glory. It's a sure thing. He's a redeemer come to rule and reign, to reconcile the ruined and to reveal the reversal. And if you take in his love, bow your knee and trust his rule in your life, you will begin to discover perfect peace that can only be from out of this world because you won't find it in this world. How will you respond to this visitation, friends? There's no neutrality. 
as we see here, you have three groups opposed to Jesus. Groups that actually correspond to the three offices, by the way. Looking to destroy this man who has come to rule over them. You have those who are opposed and those who hang on his every word. Friends, may we be numbered among those who find his rule and his words growing ever sweeter to our taste as we go forward in life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we confess our need. And we confess our rebellion. And we confess our absolute awe in what you have done in Jesus Christ. And we confess that it's hard for us to believe that something like this could be true. And yet it is, Lord. And I pray right now that these longings we have in our heart for peace they will land on the King of Peace that will set our hearts on seeking to know him, to follow him, to give him our all, knowing that he has given his all for us. Thank you, Jesus. We know that nobody has ever loved us more or better than you. Thank you, Father, for your son, and we pray for your spirit and new measure in Jesus' name. Amen.